0: Hi, I'm Pastor Josh, and I want to welcome you to the Catalyst Podcast, and thank you for listening. I hope these messages from our teaching team will help point you to Jesus as we seek to help everyone love God, love people, and make disciples. Ephesians 2, 1-10 through 10 says this, As for you, you in the Greek means you, us. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus this is the bit I want you to really focus in on for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it's a gift of God not by works so that no one can boast For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This morning, I want to ask you one question. Well, I'll ask you a lot more than that, but I'm going to start with one, and that is this, and I'll come back to it. Do you know what you're living for? Do you know what you're living for? That three-letter word may be the most important in the... English vocabulary. Now last week, if you were here or if you watched online as I did, you'll remember that Pastor Nate helped us to see the importance of baptism in the Christian life. When we meet Jesus and give our lives to him, life changes, or it ought to. In baptism, we acknowledge publicly, externally, the real change that is already going on and occurring inside of us. And as Nate also explains, something else is going on and in baptism we go on and get death out of the way if you're a Christian you've been baptized one of the great things about it is I mean it, it is symbolic but it's also real you have your own funeral and instead of dirt you go down into water and when you come out you're alive again one of my favorite preachers uh, uh, was dying of, of cancer, actually he did die of cancer, and uh, he was interviewed by ABC News. He was kind of a popular guy for a while, and uh, and, and uh, he, they said, aren't you afraid to die? And he looked at the reporter and laughed, not just condescendingly, but laughed and said, die. John Wimber died in 1963. Like, Can you imagine, man? You're playing with house money. When you come up out of the water You're born into something new. Death is gone. And by the way, you won't die again. You live forever. You get your funeral out of the way. Now, that's not why our baptismal looks like a coffin, but we love the fact that it does. (laughs) It's a good reminder, and I've been to funerals in here. I've played music at funerals in here where they put the deceased up front in the coffin. And I think it's so ironic and yet so fitting that we roll the same coffin over during baptism sunday and people go willingly and get it up out of the way we have no fear in death because we already done died when you come up out of the water you're no longer yourself you're someone new and you have a new kind of life to live now as we come up out of the water i think the fact is we're pretty aware of what we've been saved from in fact most of the time well i know all the time here at catalyst there's some process by which you, uh, you testify to what God has done in your life, and you talk to one of the pastors or one of the elders, someone that, that's shepherding you along, and, and you tell them what it is you've been saved from, why you're going through with this, what's the point? And, and by doing that, you go in, you come out, and you're testifying to what you've been saved from. But how many of us have stopped to ask what we've been saved for? From on one hand, for on the other. Now our pastors asked me to speak this morning on what Christians do after baptism. We've got a a number of new disciples in the room. Many of you have just been baptized. Others of you have been Christians for a very long time but haven't really had to think about this for a while, and that is this, we know what we're saved from, but what is it that we're saved for? And the for question is, I think, maybe the most pressing question facing the church today. In fact, I believe it is, but those are fighting words and I'd have to You know that's another sermon or a a discussion over coffee but I do and and I think this is the case for a number of reasons one is um, permit me to put on a nerd hat for just one moment is it's an occupational hazard I teach philosophy at Anderson University is one of the things I teach and the philosopher Charles Taylor not Chuck Taylor that's the shoe guy but Charles Taylor uh, (laughs) Charles Taylor wrote a book uh, where he talked about he, he noticed something happening in culture and he said you know back in the day People were motivated, well, first of all, we're motivated by our fears. A lot of what you do every day is a result of what you're afraid of, like it or not. A lot of guys are uncomfortable with that, but it's the truth. But he said back in the day what really made people afraid what kept them awake at night was a fear of condemnation there were kings there were popes there were leaders who had actual authority over them now this is before democracy and the fireworks and all that stuff that happened on 4th of July but but so they're afraid that one day they would wake up and the power over them whether it's secular or religious would condemn them and that fear of condemnation kept them awake at night but Charles Taylor says this that is no longer the case Now, people are still afraid of being condemned, but what actually motivates us, what causes us to Instagram our lunches, is that we're afraid of meaninglessness. That's the thing that keeps us up at night. We're afraid in the end we don't matter. And so it's not enough anymore, it's not enough anymore to have a sandwich at Panera. There's no meaning in that, that just fuels your body. You've got, we're so desperate for meaning that we inject it through social media. You guys might have heard of social media. It's a big deal. The thing that keeps us up at night is that we're afraid our lives don't matter. Now, that's anecdotal, but let me give you the data. Scholars are saying that we're living in a culture that's experiencing a crisis of meaning. The Barna Group just did a study and found that Fitting in or, and not missing out, fitting in and not missing out, are the biggest cultural idols, according to them. They have interviewed students. It's the big, those are the biggest cultural idols, fitting in and not missing out, for today's teenagers and 20-somethings. Now, my sense is that actually extends into this generation that, that I'm a part of and, and forward. According to a, a Harvard pollster, nearly half of the members of Gen Z, and just to kind of cut through what that means, anyone uh, roughly between the ages of 13 and 27 in the room, or, for those of you that have kids or grandkids in that area, area, uh, any members of Gen Z, he said that that nearly half of the members of Gen Z suffer from the kind of depression that requires clinical treatment. The CDC claims that suicide in Gen Z's is the second leading cause of death, with a uh, a 56% increase in the years between 2007 and 2017. 56% increase the fruit of our culture is literally dying on the vine for lack of meaning but it isn't just young people one recent study from Britain this one floored me they're kind of weird over there but but honestly they share a lot in common with us one recent study from Britain relayed that across age groups an average of 80% of people across all age brackets reported their lives as being meaningless It's four out of five people they asked said in the end I don't have meaning in my life no wonder we are chasing so many things some of them are innocent right like my beloved Colts yeah a grown man in a football jersey is weird let's call it out we are looking for meaning we're desperate for it that's just the way it is and here at home forget Britain we're dealing with an epidemic that, that people are calling, researchers are calling, a death, uh, uh, an epidemic in the deaths of despair. Have you heard about this? What they've done is it's, it's they've they've added or or put together deaths of despair uh, are are anything a death caused by a drug overdose, alcohol abuse, or suicide. Three things. All three of those deaths indicate an underlying sense of despair and a lack of meaning. A group called Trust for America's Health. Tracks these deaths of despair. And in 2011, they found that 104,000 Americans died from deaths of despair. That's 12 years ago. And yet it's doubled, more than doubled, to 209,225. And we have not seen much of a population increase in that time. Our neighbors are asking a question. You people, if I believe the data and I do, you're asking a question. What am I living for? If only there was a group of people who met on Sundays who had an answer for that kind of a question. If only there was a group of people who met on Sundays and had a book that literally makes the point, page after page, of answering the question, what does it mean to be human? What's life for? What's the point? If only, unfortunately, we don't have that, or do we? Seriously, the cultural predicament that we're facing, it's like it's been teed up for us. This should be the church's moment. What is happening? Why aren't we after it? The actual question people are asking is the one for which we, the church, have a compelling answer. And yet, we are seen, statistically, to be about the last place people expect to find an answer to that question. You know what they think they're gonna find here, by the way? And actually, I think this is, now I'm getting off script, I'll get myself in trouble, but the fact is, we're so busy preaching as if people's biggest fear is condemnation that we're just talking over their heads. That's not to say it's not true to preach that way, but it's not the question culture's asking, even though they should be. They're asking a meaning question, we're preaching to condemnation, and we we wonder why we're not resonating. Maybe it's that we haven't done the work necessary to have an answer when the question is asked, and here I quote from 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. I'm just not sure we've taken the time to be ready to answer. And I say that as charitably as possible, and actually after having spent a couple years now uh, in my role as a seminary professor traveling a bit uh, in the Church of God. I, I conferences in California, in Florida, here in Indiana, uh, most recently back in Florida, uh, one in Texas. Uh, and I've, I've listened. I've asked questions. And, and as I've traveled and I've listened, one thing has become abundantly clear. We know what we're saved from, but we seem to not have a clue as to what we're saved for. This brings us to our scripture for today after the longest most depressing introduction you've ever heard in a sermon <laughs> it, it's all uphill from here just get ready now I'm not going to read it again but I already have and I love this passage for this particular purpose for this sermon to answer the question what are we here for what are we living for what are we saved for because it answers actually both the questions of what we've been saved from and the questions of what we've been saved for and this morning I want to walk you through the passage, old school sermon style, which I normally never preach this way, but good. Here we go. Old school style. Walk us through the text, and by the end, my hope is that you'll have a better sense for what it is you personally have been saved for. Or at least have to look in the mirror and ask the question: what is it that I'm living for? All right. Let's start with the from. What are we saved from? Well. Paul says we are saved from, in verse 1, he says, he says this, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Now, the word dead here, in the Greek language, is, is nekros. It's where we get, uh, 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 literally, necro would mean corpse. But it's used as an adjective here, which means you're like a corpse. You're not a corpse, but you're like one. In other words, you're corpse-like that's literally what the Greek says you were corpse-like corpse-like Paul is literally saying that the Ephesians and he's saying to each and every one of us that we were laying there barely breathing barely pulse beating like a corpse and then the question we should ask is why what put us in a place where we weren't functioning right Where we were living lame now i this is crazy to say praise god for medicine i had knee surgery eight days ago nine nine days ago crazy and i was laid up for four days i had to watch church online last week no offense to you watching online but woof like it's hard you know like it's hard you have to tune in and I'm, i'm laying there in my pajamas you know drinking coffee watching trying to trying to to be plugged in but i realized i'm not functioning well I wasn't quite corpse-like, but if you'd have come over and seen my hair going in different directions, and I wasn't allowed to shower for two days, it was not a pretty picture. <laughs> Laying there by myself, and I'm thinking, I get what it's like to not function well. Right? That's what I think Paul is talking about. And why are we malfunctioning? Why is it that we're not operating like we were made to operate? And he says it's because of our sins and our transgressions. Now, these are fancy theological words. But they don't need to be. Sins and transgressions aren't just fancy theological words. They are to our spirits what poison is to our body. In other words, these are things that you have done that have caused you injury. Stumbles. I think it feels so weird that sometimes we think we might stumble. I mean, sin's hard to talk about, right? It is what it is. But why would we think we'd stumble or slip or whatever, do something that goes in a way that we're not made to, to go, and then not feel the pain a little afterwards? But Paul says these sins and con- transgressions, over the course of our lifetimes, they poison us to the point where we're laying there corpse-like with barely a pulse. And anyone passing by would think we're already dead this is what happens when we live life on our terms now listen I want to be very clear sometimes this isn't obvious stuff now if you go kick a puppy you're a bad person <laughs> no one's arguing that and you know it right away but sometimes you just live life and you get caught up in things that cause you to start to malfunction for instance God bless Rickers but really what has it done to me 20 years of drinking Ricker Pox. that adds up like you got to be careful moderation right or jack's donuts these are not sinful things but but over the course of time if you're not careful your body gets poisoned and you start to function or start to fail to function in the ways you could the ways you were meant to this again is us when we live life on our own terms in our own way we are simply not made to function this way and there will be pain as a result we stopped functioning as we were meant to function. And this is why here at Catalyst, Pastor Josh, whose pulpit I am privileged to stand at, and Pastor Nate, who nailed it last week, and so many other people that are part of our teaching team, uh, Jeff Mattis is here and others, we preach boldly that Jesus came to earth and gave himself up. He became an actual corpse, not corpse-like. Now we're talking about a noun, not an adjective. He became an ab- actual corpse to rescue you from becoming one let me say that again because that's the heart of the gospel jesus came to earth and gave himself up he became a real corpse to rescue you from becoming one and then thanks to the resurrection he didn't stay that way and paul says we won't either he says that that just a little farther down he says uh he says for god raised us from the dead along with christ This is from the passage we read earlier. For God raised us from the dead along with Christ. We are saved from all of this. From death, we've got blood pumping again through our veins, but Paul doesn't stop there, and neither should we. It's not enough to know what you've been saved from. You better get a sense for what you've been saved for. And there is a lot we could say about this. But they've given me a time limit, and I'm used to having 50 minutes to lecture. That's not the case today. Don't worry. I saw a few panic looks in the, in the room. But I'm, I just want to limit myself to a few remarks to kind of to get you thinking here. And, and I do want to encourage you this. This is Ephesians 2, the first 10 verses. If you don't have a, a Bible habit, Bible reading habit, um, this would be a good, just this, maybe just this week, read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 every day. Even if you do have a Bible reading habit, if you can just eke out a little bit more time, read this, or at least read verses nine and 10. But let me tee it up a little for you so that when you do read, you have a better sense for what I think's going on. What are we saved for? Well, look at what Paul says immediately after what I just read, and this is crazy stuff, but he says this, for God raised us from the dead along with Christ Jesus, and here's what he says, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in christ jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in christ jesus and god raised us up with christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms listen this is nerd stuff sort of but it it matters so much and my students get tired of me saying this i'm so pedantic but tenses matter This is not an academic question. This is is a Christian question. Do you realize that the words seated and raised are both in the past tense? That should mess with you a little this morning. We are already, we are already seated with God in the heavenly realms. What does that even mean? Well, we need to think, and this is a whole other sermon, but I'm going to tease it a little. But we need to think more about heaven being a place that overlaps Earth. And too often, we think of it as a place we are going to in the end, that's way out there. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that heaven, or as Dallas Willard says, the effective range of God, or the range of God's effective will, it's right here, right now. Just to just to clarify what I mean by the range of God's effective will, you have a will and you have an effective will. My will is that I drive home in a BMW. I am a teacher at a small liberal arts university. It is not within my effective will to purchase such a car. You see, the range of my effective will is what I'd like ma- matched with what I've got. And my credit will not permit me to drive a BMW home. Right? Now, it might be being within the range of someone's effective will in the room to permit me to drive a BMW home. <laughs> <laughs> that's another story (laughs) but the Bible seems to say and I'm cutting to the chase that heaven is essentially anywhere that God's effect will is effectively happening where God is king unchallenged that is in a sense heaven now someday god will be unchallenged his effective will will be without challenge we'll stop messing up we'll stop getting in the way other things will stop getting in the way and and we will live in the effective will of god in the meantime we kind of settle for this weird mix of heaven and earth and and uh, people that i read that i really love ask you to think less of it like heaven in the clouds and more like there's a curtain here, an invisible curtain, and that heaven's actually happening alongside of us. Now, if that's the case and we are seated there already, that means we have access to heaven now. I'm not making this up. It's in the Bible. But if we're already seated with God in heaven, that means we have access to these things. That is to say that God has invited us to share in his authority, to be the agents of his authority. Now, just after the passage I've already read, uh, nine verses later in chapter uh, uh, two, um, Paul says this, "'Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household.'" I'm privileged to be a part of this church where there's so many people with so many different gifts um, one of them, uh, is someone I had the privilege of talking with last week about this, and, and Tom Anderson's in the room, and he's, he's someone who does a, a fair bit of thinking and writing. He's actually in the middle of working on a book. I've had the, the chance to read a couple chapters now. And his contention is that we're moving into, or we should be moving into, an age, uh, a mature discipleship moves into an age of authority, of, of, of ownership in the inheritance as children of God. That's what we're moving towards. That's part of the four. Correct me later if I'm, if I'm off there on chapter 2. We are children of God. Well What does it mean to be children of God? What would it mean to be members of a household? Well, to give you an idea, I think it's, it's actually kind of basic, right? Like, I think back to high school. Um, one of my friends was, was named Kevin Levine. Uh, I ran cross-country with him, and, and uh, uh, he lived close enough to school where a lot of times we'd end up at his house after school. Now, one of the reasons we ended up there is, of all the pantries in the school, his parents was the most loaded <laughs> it was good they had the name brand stuff they had variety personally what I preferred most they had these they had this this is you know they had a barrel with these ginormous hard pretzels it felt like something you get like in some other country or something I thought this is living my parents they're here today we didn't get anything like that <laughs> I mean we didn't even get orange juice we were drinking Tampico like this was the big time <laughs> this was big and we go over there, and now here's the thing. I was a guest of the family, which means I did not have access to that pantry, not without permission from Mr. and Mrs. Levine. But There were times when they'd be working, and as a guest, now this is in the south where people still have manners, but as my friend's parents were working, I could not just wander into the pantry then and get what I wanted, because they're not around, no. I knew to ask Kevin, if i could have access to that which he already enjoyed as a member of the household he had with certain conditions that his parents had placed on him access to the riches of the house at someone else's house i don't have the privilege but the point is this you are a member of god's house You have access to things as a member of the family that you simply don't when you're a guest. Let me read that scripture again. We are no longer foreigners and strangers or visitors from the high school, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. The pantry is wide open, my friends. Here we sit starving on the couch while our friends are dying, but again, back to the bleak. I told you it was heading up, but I can't help myself. (laughs) We have authority. We have the authority of being a member of the family. For the purposes of what? Let's get to it. Look what Paul says in the next verse. In order that in the coming ages, God might show the incomparable riches of his grace. The Greek here literally reads in the ages that are coming. So Paul was writing the Ephesians 1,900 years ago. From that standpoint, you, me, us, we are now living in the ages that are coming. That's us. God wants to show the incomparable riches of his grace to us and through us. That is to say, the pantry stocked. And listen, the expiration dates are coming near. And God's thinking, I went to Sam's, Heaven Sam's, and I bought all this stuff, and you people aren't eating it. You're not even giving it away. And that's what it's there for. Second thing, if you read it from the perspective of Paul speaking to us directly today, Remember, he said that we too have been raised from the dead and are now seated in heaven so that in ages that are yet coming, God's incomparable riches and grace would be shared, as I just said. We have access to God's pantry, and it's time to start handing out the snacks. This brings me to the last point from the text I want to hit today. Look with me at the last few verses of our passage. Again, if you don't have time this week or this is all you got time for, make sure you hit these hard. This covers the gospel in a nutshell, the both the the save for and the save from. Sorry, save from and save for. This covers it. All right, it says this in verse 8 through 10. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from ourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, and by the way, don't stop there. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do now verse 8 hits again what we've been saying you've been saved from death but I want you to focus ahead on verse 10 for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do the word handiwork is so important it doesn't translate well to English you might have in your Bible masterpiece or, or handiwork craftsmanship this is what we are and all of them are true But the Greek word is actually Poema. This is a word that, that speaks of creation. In fact, the word poem in English actually comes from this Greek word. What it denotes or connotes, I suppose, it, it's 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 something a someone creates and puts a little of themselves into. This is not just an object. I ran into a friend this week at, at, at Payless, uh, uh and and. He told me that he's got a new job and he's making custom furniture. He showed me a few pictures. It's beautiful, beautiful stuff made from hardwood. I asked him, How much does that stuff sell for? And he told me, and I looked down at all the clearance stuff I had in my cart and thought, Not for me, right? <laughs> <laughs> these are pieces, these are heirloom pieces, pieces you pass down. Now I go to IKEA, the exact opposite, essentially, of what he's doing. And it got me thinking. Poema is a table that is one of a kind, That is, or that in, in itself demonstrates the very effort and creativity of the maker. Tables at Ikea, they hold the plates and the glasses and the food and they, they do it a whole lot cheaper, but the table from Ikea is an object that bears no part of its maker. Shoot, I'm the maker with those hex keys that... And by the time I'm done, there's no part of that man should be associated with a table, right? That's when preachers start swearing. But uh <laughs> the fact is that these custom tables demonstrate the very effort and creativity of the Maker. Now, this word poema in the Bible is only used one other place, and, and that's to describe the mystery of creation in, in Romans 120, where Paul talks about how things were in the beginning. And he talks about God's creation uh, like this. He says, uh, through everything God made, poema, people can see clearly his invisible qualities. And I mean, that's what I've been saying, right? In other words, creation isn't just stuff. Everything God has made is unique, handcrafted, and it bears the effort and creativity of the maker. In other words, coming back out of the Greek and into real life you are a -a one-of-a-kind masterpiece and you just like well just like we've been saying you have a job to do you have a function just like a custom table does you have you've been born with a purpose and a craftsman lovingly thought about your purpose when he put you together what are we meant to do Verse 10 says to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now this is eye-opening, this is is crazy. When I first saw this in the text a few years ago, it stopped me in my tracks. Why had no one told me this before? The Bible literally says that, that God prepared, he left something back for me to do. Right now, in this age, God has amazing ideas, projects, people, businesses, relationships, ideas, songs, poems, that he set apart and had in mind that he saved back for us knuckleheads. We get to do this stuff, and it's just for us. You see, our world is broken and groaning, and they're asking the question, what are we here for? And into that world, God placed masterpieces with access to the pantry of heaven. And Paul ain't walking through the door. He's dead. Good writer, Bible guy, kind of a big deal. He's dead. He's not coming back to sort things out. He won't tell your neighbor about Jesus. He won't. Billy Graham ain't walking through the door. God created the situation we're in, not for Billy Graham to get here and do the work of. God created the situation we're in, the culture we're in, the very moment we're in, and he set back things in the pantry with expiration dates that coincided with where we're heading for you to step into. Pastor Josh and Pastor Nate, Pastor Austin, all the the other people that work here, they've got jobs to do and they do them, but that's not even, that they can't do there's too much to do for them to do all that work. That's not what it says. It doesn't say in the text. It doesn't say to do good works, which God prepared in advance for the professional ministers to do. You are seated. You don't need a PhD or a DM or an MDiv or just a job that pays you to do it. To do the good works, it's your job. It's what you're here for. Now, that doesn't mean you need to start preaching. It might mean, it might mean, as I look around, I mean, there's, it might mean you're in healthcare. And your job is to care about people's health in a way that brings <laughs> God's intention into this present moment and helps people understand not just what they're saved from, above me, but what they're saved for, health. You may own a business. You no, know, there are all these different kinds of things, but as we transition towards... Closing and 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 I want to come back to our original question, worship team, you might as well come up. This is our time. The text here says that's us, we have something to do, that God set it back for us. Our neighbors are hungry, and it's our turn to start handing out the snacks. How crazy. I just want to dwell on that for a second. God prepared things in advance for us to do what would it look like if you thought he might have had your neighbor in mind and you in mind as the person that would introduce them to a better kind of life how crazy is this he might have thought I'm going to create a teenager essentially I'm gonna I'm gonna grow a teenager with a passion honestly for working with their hands and I know that as I, as I, I, I create situations and, and in their family and in their church, they start to, to grow in the Lord, but also grow in their skills, that in the meantime, there is a, a need in the world that's starting to meet that skill you have. Again, your granddad, yesterday I got some tools from my granddad, he can't use them anymore. It's your turn to start using the tools. There's work to be done that only you can do alright so let's return to my original question do you know what you're living for do you know what you're living for it's not enough to know what you're saved from not at all that's not even close to the plan God has for you he wants to see you alive he wants to get you moving he wants to give you meaning by giving you a mission you have been saved for special stuff that he set apart for you. And just you. The question today is what is your for? You are a unique piece of craftsmanship. No one is like you. No one. I want you to think for a minute. What might God have set aside in advance, way back when? What might he have prepared for you to do? Where are you standing in God's pantry? What's close by? What do you have access to that you can hand out the door? What we're gonna do here in a minute, I'm gonna have you stand here in a minute, just a second, but we've put note cards that I stole from my university this morning. Anderson University is pouring into this church Uh, and I want to ask you during the response song I want you to to think about what you want to do saying is fine but I want you to think about what you're for what are you saved for by the way we're not taking these cards these are for you all right you can be as honest as you want to be now you're welcome to leave them on the prayer wall after you're done if you want us to pray about what you think you're saved for what your purpose is we'll pray over your purpose this week the prayer team will but they're really more for you to take home. Put them, Tape them to your bathroom mirror, put them in your wallet. It's time to stop staying in the world of what you're saved from and start to think about what you're saved for. We, we, it's not negotiable. This is not optional. It's the point of the church. And there's a world, as I said, asking the questions. So go ahead and stand. There are pens scattered around, hopefully enough now listen if nothing comes to you I want you to listen to the Lord if, if, if you say you know maybe you're not sure how to do this but you think God what is my for that's the question I want you to ask as we're singing here what's my for God and maybe he doesn't give it to you that's okay no shame you didn't fail you're not messed up what you do is put it in your pocket throw it in your purse whatever you got and take it home and, and ask him each day what's my for God what's my for and I believe that if you ask him day by day the more you ask He's faithful to give and he will give you a sense. maybe it'll be a picture, maybe it'll be a, an idea, a name, it'll some kind of passion will rise up in you. And sometime during this week you'll think that dumb preacher who just kind of said a lot of pressing things, he was right. The fact is God gave me a four and then you write it down then and you keep it and you tell somebody, someone who's close to you, tell them what your four is. you might be amazed what begins to happen. And again, if you'd like, you can put them here, leave them with us, and we'll pray over those. But if you can think of something right now, what is God saying in this quiet moment as we sing? What is God asking you to lean into? You know what you've been saved from. Church, what are you saved for? Thank you for listening. I hope God uses this audio to form and make disciples of Jesus. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. If you'd like to connect with Catalyst Church, we'd love for you to join us live and in person or online. If you'd like to give to our ministry, you can do that by going to our website at catalystpendleton.org.